Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, the podcast that travels back into time to review classic episodes of Jim Crockett Promotions' Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling as it appears on the NBC Universal streaming service Peacock, as well as internationally on the WWE Network. And before we begin today's voyage, I'd just like to note we have social media on several platforms. Our Twitter is the most active, but we have a Facebook page, Facebook group, Instagram, and more. Just search at Mid-Atlantic Pod and look for the logo. If you want to follow along with us but don't have access to Peacock or the network, you can still do so by heading over to the mighty midatlanticgateway.com and checking out David Tobb's reviews of these classic shows. We'd also appreciate you heading over to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod where you can find full podcasts, truncated versions of classic episodes. Please subscribe, watch, and like the videos. It would be doing us a great service. And please also consider supporting us via Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash midatlanticpodcast. Today, in episode number 50, we take a look at the television that was taped on Wednesday, January 5th, 1983, at the WPCQ Studios, Channel 36, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and began airing in local markets beginning that weekend of Saturday, January 8th, 1983. And in the last episode, we reviewed that show from January 1st, 1983, which was taped on December 29th, 1982. Kind of felt like it was still a little groggy after eating too much during the holidays. A little starchy, maybe. But during this week's show, everything gets dialed right back up again. And here to talk about it with me is my co-host, Roman Gomez. Roman, how are you? I'm doing good, Mike. How's everything going with you? I cannot complain, especially after watching this show. I am all fired up. Hopefully I don't peek the microphone too many times here because for the relative lack of action that we got last week, Sands, Don Cronoodle, and Ricky Steamboat, really, Roman, you know, it was a show that was based on Roddy Piper, who was not there, getting an award from PWI, and it was a lot about moving some angles and some things forward, but not in the most dramatic of ways. This week, we get back to the dramatics. And the show opened up with a match already in the ring. Mid-Atlantic television champion Mike Rotundo was tying it up with Ken Timms. We got to see about three and a half minutes of this match. Our referee for the day is Tommy Young. A little back and forth, mostly on the ground. And after a crisscross, Rotundo stopped in the center of the ring scooped Tim's up over his shoulders and delivered the airplane spin, which led to the three count and the victory for the TV champion. After the match, Bob Cottle ran down what we'd see today, and as he was doing so, the ring filled up with competitors for our next match, and after a short commercial, he was joined by the World Tag Team Champions Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle, who are feeling quite full of themselves. They've got the titles, they've got some fine haberdashery, as we're going to hear, but in their minds, they have no competition. Fans, we're about ready with action in the ring, but first right here are the world tag team champions, Sergeant Slaughter, Don Kernodle. That's exactly right. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Sergeant Slaughter and I, the world tag team champions, we thrive on competitions. Here we are on the Mid-Atlantic TV show with nobody to wrestle. Nobody to wrestle. Let's tell them about it, Sarge. Well, you know, it happens to us week after week. <laughs> nobody wants to wrestle us in a tag match. And a little bit later in the show, one man had the guts to get in the ring with Don Cronodal, and you'll see that later. Don's going to take off his new expensive $300 coat, his $50 shirt, which I helped him buy since we won the World Tag Team Championships. 
Let me tell you maggots out there, if you've got the guts, I've got my bag out in the limousine right out in front of the studio right here. And if two guys want to get the guts enough to get in that ring, we'll wrestle you. But till then, I'm going back in the studio, get on the telephone, and see if we can't find some competition. Come on down, let's go change your clothes and we'll have a match. World Tag Team Champion, Sergeant Thorner, Don Canola. As we say, six-man action in the ring now, ready to go. So let's go to the ring. There we hear from Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canoodle, the NWA World Tag Team Champions. Neither Sergeant Slaughter nor Jay Youngblood were in the studio last week. Talking about his haberdashery, talking about the $300 coat and the $50 shirt that he helped Don Canoodle buy here, uh, Roman. And we know that Ric Flair has talked about buying his suits from Michaels in Kansas City. And we have heard Sergeant Slaughter mention that Barnett's of Atlanta is where he has gotten some of his men's apparel. No word on where he got this uh, outfit for Canoodle, but very interesting that he pointed out the price of these things, isn't it? Yes, $300 back then, I'm sure, was quite a bit of money and just seemed to come right out of the blue that he mentioned $300 for a suit. Hmm. Probably something we're going to keep an eye on for the rest of the broadcast here, but six-man tag team match getting ready to start. The United States heavyweight champion, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Dory Funk Jr., man of the $100,000 challenge, and Red Dog Larry Lane making his first appearance on Mid-Atlantic Television. A old veteran from out of Colorado, performed for Dory Funk and Terry Funk in Amarillo for a long time, went up to Calgary, spent some time in Florida, kind of went all over the place, and uh, the the Funks were very loyal to him. He gets his chance here in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Basically, we'll settle out in the mid-card, as we're going to see over the next upcoming weeks, but. For right now, he's got Sir Oliver Humperdinck by his side, as do Valentine and Funk. And very interesting here, Dick Slater making his first appearance back on TV in the Mid-Atlantic area. And he's in as a babyface, teaming up with his old tag team partner, Bob Orton Jr. and Jerry Briscoe here. Something very interesting happened right off the bat in this match, as as soon as the bell rang, Slater started it out for his team, and Lane did for his. But that wouldn't last long, as Lane didn't want to engage with Slater. They looked like they were going to lock up. Lane evaded Slater. He bailed, rolled out of the ring, and when he rolled back in, he immediately tagged Greg the Hammer Valentine, who then got in the ring and also didn't want to deal with Dick Slater. He instead complained to Tommy Young about the fact that Dick Slater's right hand was all taped up. He then tagged in Dory Funk Jr., who also didn't want to deal with Dick Slater, and he told Slater to tag out to Jerry Briscoe, who gladly obliged him and jumped in the ring. He's been talking about, along with his brother Jack, who is the Mid-Atlantic heavyweight champion, they have both talked about going after Dory Funk Jr. and his $100,000, so everything seemed all copacetic there. Those two mixed it up for a brief period until Briscoe tagged Slater back in, and when he did that, Funk bailed out again. Funk tagged Valentine. Once again, Valentine didn't want anything to do with Slater. He instead wanted Bob Orton Jr., who came in the ring. And at that point, we finally got several uninterrupted moments of action as everyone got some time in the ring 
with the exception of Dick Slater. And, long story short, the stable of rule breakers had a really good reason to not want to mix it up with Slater when they were in the ring with him. It would have revealed their diabolical plan. So let's take a listen to what happened here with Dick Slater and his teammates. Orton ducks under the elbow and lands the elbow himself as he comes off of the ropes again. Funk was going to send him in the next week with the elbow, and it was Orton as they go down. They both go down when they collide. Humperdinck, irate now, trying to get Orton on his feet. Here comes Briscoe into the ring. Hey, something going on here as Slater came charging into the ring while Orton is down on the mat, and he went with those knee drops now down across Orton. And Slater is in the corner with Briscoe and Orton, and now slams Briscoe over the top rope. Valentine with the elbow smashes, and Slater now saying Valentine holding as they go to work now on Orton and Briscoe, and it's four now against two. And Slater turned against his teammates. Well, what a brought this about? I don't know, but here comes Roddy Piper charging in. Piper and Valentine go at it. Referee Tommy Young says, ring the bell, stop it, we gotta get some order. Funk goes out, there goes Slater out. Valentine goes out, as does Red Dog Lane. No match. Referee Tommy Young says, no match. And Slater, when they both were down on the mat, Slater came out of his own corner with those knee drops down across the head now of Bob Orton. Then Slater turned against everybody. Everybody on his corner. And there you hear Bob Cottle on the call. When Bob Wharton Jr. was down, Dick Slater got in the ring, immediately started dropping knees on him, started dropping elbows on him, ultimately threw his own partner, Gerald Briscoe, over the top rope to the floor. At that point, Tommy Young, I mean, it, there had been no reason to call for a disqualification or to throw the match out quite yet, even though... Slater had gone after his own partner. That's no reason to call a DQ, but when Roddy Piper hit the ring, finally Tommy Young throws the whole thing out, and it looks as if Dirty Dick Slater, the unpredictable one, has joined Sir Oliver Humperdinck, or at the very least, has turned his back on Jerry Briscoe and Bob Orton Jr., Roman. Slater, that was kind of a surprising turn of events there, you know, but like you painted the picture earlier, it makes sense now how... Dory, Valentine, Red Dog Lane, they all did not want to mix it up with Slater because it was part of the plan. Slater was going to turn on his teammates and join the House of Humperdinck. Yeah, match went about eight minutes, and after it was over, Sir Oliver Humperdinck joined Bob Cottle at the desk. And even though he was giddy over what had happened, he was also very giddy over something that had happened on January 1st in Charlotte. And he shows the VTR. The end of the Abdul the Butcher, Jimmy Valiant, one-man gang, Joe LaDuke match, where the gang gave Valiant a 747 splash after the match was over. And according to Sir Oliver Humperdinck, that means Jimmy Valiant is over. Greg Valentine is also there, and he joins him for some words of warning to Roddy Piper and some words about Dick Slater as well. Will surprises never cease. I like it. I wasn't too very long ago, I stood right here on this very spot and I told everybody out there that as soon as a one-man gang gets his hands on Jimmy Valiant, that the boogie-woogie man would slowly fade into the sunset. 
Well, we've done just that. We've taken care of the Boogie Woogie Man. We beat him up so bad that nobody out there is going to ever see the man again. Let me just tell you one thing. When I say something's going to get done, and Jimmy Valiant, you know this more than anybody else, I get it done. And I'm using the one-man gang to get it done, and baby, I like it. I got a little videotape uh, yeah, well, now. I want to yeah, show you minute, just Jimmy, what happened Jimmy to Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant's got his own version. Right here. Take a look. Jimmy Valiant in the ring with the one-man gang. Take a look at this, baby. Right up on the shoulders, and that big old power slam, boom! No more Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant, I don't have to worry about anymore because he's not in my hair. There's one yeah. big splash. Give him another one, gang. I like it. Every time I see this, I just smile from here to here. He is nothing but a liar. One picture is worth a thousand words, and I showed you the videotape of how my one-man gang took care of Jimmy Valiant. Valiant, if you get the guts. I don't think you got the brains to climb in that ring again with them, but if you do, we'll be waiting on you anytime, any place, anywhere. How All about right. that? Fans, huh? and that's it right here at ringside. So there we hear from Sir Oliver Humperdinck, and I paused it right there because that was the last thing that everybody saw if they were watching Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, no matter where they were. Upcoming, the localized promos, which means we don't get those, but we do get what got sent down to Florida, Humperdick stuck around, as did Greg the Hammer Valentine, and they talk about Valentine's deal and situation that he has going on with Barry Windham. Now, on December 18th, after Kevin Sullivan had defeated Dusty Rhodes and tried to hand over the Southern Heavyweight Championship to Jake Roberts, the NWA overturned that decision, declared the title vacant, had a tournament for it, and in the finals, Blackjack Mulligan Jr., who was now known as Barry Windham, knocked off Greg Valentine and began a charge at Nature Boy Ric Flair in the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Here's Valentine and Humperdinck talking about Barry Windham. The house of Humperdinck, of course, and one of his boys right here, the U.S. Heavyweight Champ, Greg Valentine. You know, we're spending a lot of time here in the Mid-Atlantic area, which is a great wrestling area, probably one of the best in the whole entire world. But you know we go other places too. We go down to Florida to the beautiful Sunshine State. And there's a guy out there by the name of Barry Windham that's wearing a belt that belongs to the House of Humperdinck at Barry Windham one of these days, brother. And it won't be too long. You're going to have to face the hammer again. And when that happens, we're going to walk away with that belt. Ain't that right? I don't know what Barry Windham did. I know he didn't outsmart me. I think he paid off a referee or something because I should have had that Southern Heavyweight Championship. After all, I am the United States Heavyweight Champion. The most prestigious single title in the land. And everybody knows it. And Roddy Piper knows it. That's what's eating Roddy Piper's heart out. What is Roddy Piper running out, jumping in my matches all the time for? What is he, what is he trying to prove? He's scared. I'll tell you, that's exactly right. He's scared and he's trying to take advantage of me. It's either I've got Roddy Piper down in a pinning position and Bob Orton's jumping me from the back or it's vice versa. I've got Orton down, and then here comes Rowdy, Roddy Piper. Well, Piper, you better mind your own business. You get out here and say, you get out here and say that I didn't get the job done. Well, brother, I just started. You understand? That's just a little smidget. That's just a little example of what's waiting for you down the line. Now about this Dickie Slater. Hey, I didn't want to lock horns with Dickie uh, Slater. You, you, I was a little no, skeptical. I, mean, I was a little bit leery. No, I didn't take off. The man had his, had his hand taped up. I also know that he had a friendship, a partnership, a tag team uh, championship with Bob Orton Jr. four or five years ago. 
But I also know that Dickie Slater was my friend at one time. So I didn't want to lock horns with him. But as I could see, Slater, Slater saw the light. He saw me, he saw Funk Jr., he saw Sir Oliver Humperdinck, he saw the light, you understand? And he took it to Orton, and he took it to Piper. So, Dickie Slater, I'd like you to be my partner anytime, any place, anywhere. Piper's Palace against the House of Humperdinck. Everybody out there wants to see Piper's Palace ruin the House of Humperdinck. Well, let me tell you something. You can bring Abdullah, you can bring Jack and Jerry Briscoe, you can bring anybody you want to, Roddy Piper, but as long as I'm the man in charge, and I will be for a long time, you will not defeat the House of Humperdinck. When this originally aired, only the people down in Florida who happened to be watching heard that promo. But because of the WWE Network and the fact that they have these still on the master reels, we get to hear them and everybody else gets to hear them really for the first time. And Roman, that was a damn good promo by Greg the Hammer Valentine, really kind of nailing a lot of things. His deal with Roddy Piper that he's got going on is his loss to Barry Windham and, and Windham getting him hyped up more as he's about to do battle with Ric Flair down there in Florida. Valentine's dream team partner made a, a nice case as to why he didn't get in the ring with Dick Slater, explains everything, goes into the history that the two have. Damn good promo for something that only some people who were watching that week in Florida saw. It was a good promo and I'm very grateful that you explained that because I was watching and I go, why in the world is he talking about the Southern title? I'm like, are people in the mid-Atlantic area really that concerned on what's going on in Florida championship wrestling? So that was good that you tied that all together and helped help make a little sense out of that. As soon as Dory Funk Jr. came in, man, those, those localized promos or those in lieu of promos that we've been getting, man, they certainly have been uh, gotten much, much better. Speaking of things getting much, much better, our next match, Jay Youngblood back after a week of being gone out of the studio, facing off against Rick Harris. Rowdy Roddy Piper jumps in. He joins the commentary team. And Jay Youngblood, This when you hear the clip, the, you know it starts where Jay Youngblood delivers a chop to Rick Harris that is... Flair-esque, it is Ronnie Garvin-esque, it is Walter-esque, Wahoo. Youngblood delivers some chops to Harris that were unbelievable and looks more aggressive and more physical than I think I've seen Jay Youngblood other than dealing with Slaughter and Cronoodle. Just a a fired-up guy, but what did you think about this match and what did you think about Piper jumping on the microphone? Yeah, it's always good to hear Piper on commentary. It's no secret. Mike and I are both fans of Piper. And, you know, he alludes to the fact that Bob Orton is not going to forget what Slater did. And how can you forget somebody turning on you like that? And, uh, you know, Piper always brings a, a flavor, a flair through the commentary. When uh, he's on it, it's always a lot better to hear than just coddle by himself. Jay Youngblood taking it to to the future Black Bart in this match. Hard chops. He actually dumped him outside the ring at one point and uh, bonked Black Bart's head or Ricky Harris's head on the apron, threw him back in. Match went about five minutes. Ultimately, Youngblood got the victory with a big chop to the chest, the Tommy Hawk diving chop on him for the three count. And I won't play the ending of the match. I don't have to. What really matters here is some of Roddy Piper's dialogue, as Roman mentioned during this match. And I'm going to play that for you right now. And fans, let's get a microphone right here because 
Just coming in with us right here at ringside now is Rowdy Roddy Piper. And Piper, you came charging in, you came charging into the studio. Hold on, I just want to make sure that everybody heard that one more time. Let, let me let me put that back here a little bit. Piper, you came charging in, you came charging into the studio when your friend, when your friend Dory Funk Jr. Was yeah. really catching it up there. My Bob friend, Orton, first Bob of all, Orton is not Jr. Dory Funk yeah, right, Jr. Sorry, Bob and second, and second of all, I, I don't, I don't make a habit of running in on minding my own business. Is what I make a habit of. But when I'm talking about people like Bob Orton Jr., yep. the finest young wrestler that I have ever seen, come up and win every kind of title there is to win, come up and be taken advantage of. You see, a long time ago, I remember in Atlanta. Look at that, Jay Youngblood. And Talk about fine wrestlers, man. A long time ago, I was in Atlanta in the Omni. It was supposed to wrestle Dick Slater. Everybody was telling me what a jerk I was and how great Dick Slater is. You see, what it boils down to is sometimes they don't exactly know people for what they're worth, and I know what Dick Slater is all about, and that is typical, and I expected it myself. But then again, so you see, Bob Orton Jr., you didn't see him jumping up and crying and weeping tears. You don't see him running back and saying, oh, boo-hoo. No, sir, he takes it like a man, but he remembers. We're talking elephant memory here, mister. Look at Jay Hunter. Yes, tremendous talent. Look at that. Him and Ricky Steamboat have made the finest tag team oh, I have ever they're, seen. They're a tremendous young combination. And I tell you, I think the World Tag Team Champion is going to have to be very leery of these two young men. Steamboat and Oh, chin blood. slaughter and, there, yeah. yeah uh, no hair canoodle, yeah. Well, I, I, am, I am surprised. Of course, I know I was, and I know all the fans were stunned. When Slater did what he did when he turned on Orton, when Orton was flat on the mat. Yes. But I noticed, and I went back to think about it uh, earlier in that match, Roddy, and uh, I noticed that Funk would always go out when Slater was in, was and that Valentine always went out. It Nobody tangled with him, and I couldn't figure out why. It's I thought it was a, it was a setup. Hand. That's what it was. It was yeah. a setup. Yeah. You're talking about the House of Humperdinck. They're bringing all these people in. They're bringing guys. In. You can't take nothing away from them. It was very smart. But what did we say when we first came in? They heard him out here talking about Piper's Palace. We invented that because of the House of Humperdinck. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to watch each other's back. If I'm sitting in there in a washroom, I ain't doing no good for nobody, am I? No. What we're talking about is war, one-man gang. You're talking about all these guys. Well, listen, boys, we are watching. <laughs> yeah, you got guys like like right here, like like Jay Youngblood. Look, oh, there's Harris. You're talking about a 280 right pound, yes. ooh, 280 pound man hitting Youngblood doesn't even face him. Look at Youngblood. All right, I'll go ahead and wrap it up there. There were a couple of times that I was going to wrap it up with basically a bookend of Youngblood chops, and I was going to to do that, Roman. But then then Piper started talking about chin slaughter and and bald Carnoodle, and I had to let it keep going, which was a good thing because, as you heard, Youngblood got another chop in that echoed throughout the entire studio. Man, it sounded like somebody was applauding loudly or something with those chops. They were definitely loud, and and, uh, Youngblood, he's turning up the intensity, you know, as well as he should. Steamboat and Youngblood are in the middle of the feud with Slaughter and Carnoodle, and to see Youngblood a little more aggressive to go along with the scientific style. It was nice. And, uh, you know, something subtle too, I noticed Mike was that, you know, Cottle did a good job of explaining what happened with Slater. And just, if you look at it on the surface, I don't know how many people saw a Slater heel turn coming at that moment. Cause me looking at it, you see red dog lane in a match. That's basically filled with all stars and you figure, okay, red dog Lane's going to get pinned. So the Slater heel turn was something I think that 
kind of a little bit of a swerve. And even though wrestling can be predictable, oftentimes that match, I think was a little unpredictable, which is ironic because that's Slater's name, the unpredictable Dick Slater. But I don't think tons of people saw the Slater heel turn coming. I like the way that Valentine went through and said that he wasn't sure what Slater was going to do and knew that he had a team with Orton and knew that he had issues with Slater in the past. I like the way that Bob Cottle didn't look at it as it was anything unusual because I think, like you mentioned, a lot of fans probably never saw it coming because well, I wouldn't want to get in the ring with Dick Slater either. You know, and Dory Funk, you know, they were all avoiding Slater. So it, it, it made it made sense on the surface and then ultimately made self sense on the back end when all of those guys who had never touched Slater throughout the whole match end up helping him out as he starts beating down Orton and Jerry Briscoe. So I thought that whole thing went extremely, extremely well, unless you were Jerry Briscoe or Bob Orton Jr., and we're going to hear from them now. As I mentioned, unlike last week where we didn't have a whole lot of audio cut, we have a whole lot of audio cut because there's a whole lot going on, and not only are you going to hear from Briscoe and Orton talking about the House of Humperdinck and what just took place with Dick Slater, but you're also going to hear from Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood as their day with Slaughter and Cronoodle is not over. Jerry, you and Bob, it's like a snake. A guy turned on you, partner turned on you, and knifed you almost in the back up there. Well, mostly, Bob, it's our fault. We should have known Dick Slater, the most unpredictable professional athlete there is in the world today. Dick Slater will do anything for a buck, and ev- evidently he did for some big bucks today with the House of Humberting. Right, Bob? All i got to say is this. I didn't ask Dick Slater for nothing. I haven't asked anybody for a thing. But at least right now, Slater, we know just exactly where we stand. You and me, brother, four of you didn't get the job done. I'm standing right here talking to you now. And I want to tell you something else. When I get my hands on you, I'm going to try to break you in two, you guys. Got it? Right on. All right. And here is Rick Steamboat now and Jay Youngblood with us. Rick, I tell you, those two are upset, and I think they have right and reason to be upset. Sure. Everybody was watching back there in the, in the, in the monitor. Uh, Piper was the one that was ready, and he went out there to take it upon himself to help out. But as you recall, this feud that's between Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cranoodle and Jay and myself, it goes right. back a long, long ways. started with the tearing of some feathers, as tearing of some fl- a flowered lay, putting this man in the hospital and hurting his neck and trying to put him out of professional wrestling. And then just last week, Don Cranoodle taking upon himself, being big time, big man, trying to come out here and rip one of my t-shirts up. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Cranoodle. You know, this might have cost just about eight bucks, six bucks, seven bucks. It doesn't matter. The cost isn't there. This is something, this is a personal principle yeah the principle this is a personal belonging myself and sometime maybe very very in the near future i'm going to get even with you and make a fool out of you don cornell you just find out and watch all right jay hey i guarantee you what this man just said cornell you better take it to the bank and bank it because when he says he's going to do something just like this man right here you can guarantee that we're going to do it cornell when you mess with Steamboat, when you mess with Youngblood, Slaughter, you guys bite off more than you can chew, and you guys remember that. All right, fans, that's it at ringside. So there we hear from a disappointed Bob Orton Jr. and Jerry Briscoe, and a very fired-up Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. And as you remember, Roman, last week on the show, Cronoodle and Steamboat had a brawl to end the show, went right through the credits. They didn't even play the music. They were just brawling until Bob Cottle said, hey, the camera's going off, we gotta go, and they cut to black. But part of that 
was Ricky Steamboat putting on that red shirt that Kernoodle ripped and ended up trying to get over Steamboat's head and, and did for a little while before Steamboat was able to turn the tables and wrap it around Kernoodle's throat as they brawled all over the studio floor to end the show. Steamboat brings it up again. His personal belonging was torn by Don Kernoodle, and that's not something he's going to take lightly in this battle that these guys have had where everything has turned heavy. Yeah, you don't piss off a fire-breathing dragon, Ricky Steamboat. And he vowed for revenge, and uh, my, my guess is he's going to get it. Yeah, I, I bet you he, he may here. Maybe, maybe even in the next match, as, as Don Kernoodle was in there against the old legend, Johnny Weaver. Buzzsaw Johnny Weaver, and fairly a, a back-and-forth match uh, for the most part until the end where... About five minutes in, Don Cronoodle was able to lock on the Cobra Clutch, and Johnny Weaver fought it like crazy, but he could not break that hold. He was able to survive it. He was able to keep breathing. He was able to stay conscious. But Don Cronoodle had that thing on tight when Ricky Steamboat hit the ring, wearing a blazer. Yeah, nice dress jacket he had on, a blue one, in fact. And as he, he hit the ring with this blazer, he ran right into Don Cronoodle's knee. Cronoodle saw him coming from a mile away. Steamboat ate this knee. He rocks back. Cronoodle then takes Steamboat's blazer off of him and starts to tear it up. And Ricky Steamboat just kind of backs off. And then he goes back to work on Johnny Weaver. And if you think that was the end of that whole thing, you would be very, very wrong. Ricky Steamboat was pretty excited. In fact, he was way too excited over the fact that his jacket was getting torn up. Something seemed a little off. Don Cronoodle would find out how off that was when Ricky Steamboat talked to Bob Cottle. It is Weaver's on the mat. Referee Tommy Young checking the arm of Weaver. Weaver could be very, very close to being out. Here comes Steamboat. Rick Steamboat comes into the ring. Runs right into the knee of Canoodle. It was almost like Canoodle saw him coming and was waiting on him. Just ripped that coat right off of Steamboat. And he's got his coat. And now he's telling him to go ahead and rip it up. And Canoodle does. Standing in the center of the ring is just ripping that coat up. And Youngblood. Steamboat. Steamboat. Right here. What, what about it, Steamboat? He's ripping. Ah, look at that fool. Come on, you fool. As now got Weaver up high for the slam. Here goes Steamboat over to get the coat. Count of one, he lifts Weaver back off of the mat. I told you, I told you I was going to get you back. I got your coat. You ripped you mean your own coat. Steamboat. Steamboat is staying out of his own coat. He ripped his own coat. It was Canoodle's coat. Steamboat said, I told you I'd get you back in the hour. And look at it, it just dawned on Canoodle what happened. Look at the eyes. And look at the expression on the face of Don Canoodle. It just dawned on him. It just dawned on him. It was his own coat he told us with. And here comes Canoodle. His coat. That's your coat. That's your own coat. You ain't nothing but a fool. You ain't nobody's fool but your own. 
Steamboat. He came into the ring wearing Kenoda's coat and Kenoda ripped it off of him and then tore it in the slip. Over the top rope goes Weaver. Referee Tommy Young says ring that bell. That's going to be a disqualification as Kenoda threw him over the ropes. Johnny Weaver will win it on a disqualification as Kenoda deliberately slammed him over the ropes. And Kenoda tore up and ripped up his own jacket, fans. Yes, sir. Rick I'm speechless! I can't believe this happened! I can't believe it! I'm speechless! What's going on here? I'm back on the telephone and I find out Ricky Steamboat comes out here and he rips up my coat! I just bought this coat for Don Colonel! It cost me $300! Where did he get this coat? How did he get this coat? And How did he get in the locker room? Your own man it. tore it in shreds Thank himself. You. Don Cronoto ripped it to shreds, Sergeant Slaughter. There's no reason for ripping a person's property up like this. There's no reason. How did he get in the locker room to get this coat? Who gave him the authority? Who gave him the coat in the first place? There's no reason. I don't know how he did it. Why did you rip your own coat up? I don't know how much. I'm speaking You know, it's just a conspiracy. It's a plot. I don't know who gave him that coat. I don't know why they gave it to him. But let me tell you, Steamboat, Youngblood, you're going to pay. You're going to pay. I don't know what camera's on here. Are we still on the air? All I know is you're going to pay, Youngboat. Steamboat, Youngblood, you got me confused. You don't come out here and rip up a man's jacket. This thing costs $300. $300, and you rip it up. I can't believe it. Let me so tell you, Bob Cattle. They're going to pay and pay dearly. As long as Don I'm standing Don here, Canoto somebody's going to pay. There's going to be shirt. some Tommy Bonds being thrown around here. I'm telling you, I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sick and tired of it. You get them in that ring right now, and we'll kick their cans. You get them out here, and we'll do it right now. All right, fans, and that's it right here at ringside. Don Cronoodle ends up tearing up his own coat. Steamboat just elated, just over the moon, jumping up and down, shelling off the coat to everybody in that crowd that may have been a little confused as to what was going on, made it real clear, hey, that dummy in the ring, that guy just tore up his own coat, made all the sense in the world of why Steamboat ran right into that knee and just backed off and didn't do anything and stood next to Bob Cottle and watched the whole thing play out. Just a classic switcheroo there for Steamboat on Don Cronoodle. Executed pretty much perfection, I think, you know, and something before that happened, I noticed uh, the match was a little noisy. You know, it's not saying it's a bad thing, but when Cronoodle would execute a move, he would make a sound. And when Weaver would take a move, he would, ow! And I just got me thinking about how few wrestlers today will sell like vocally, you know, they may make a facial expression or whatever, but you don't hear a wrestler in pain. And, and this, you could hear Weaver in a little bit of pain at times. So I thought that was nice. And then you get to this whole sports coat angle and steamboat celebrating over the fact that a sports coat got tore up, you know, it's like, what's that all about? And then he reveals, Hey, it was Pernoodle sports coat and to throw pieces of it that are shredded into the ring just to mock Kernoodle even more. It just, 
This was a very good angle. The crowd got into it. They ate it up. And Steamboat, a man of his word, he said he was going to get even with them, and he did. He made Carnoodle look like a fool. Well, I thought Slaughter and Carnoodle didn't have any competition. Can you believe the temerity of a wrestler to put their hands on another wrestler's personal belongings and tear them up? Can you believe that someone would dare tear something up like a sports jacket like that? Can you believe that? I mean, it's not a oh, lay or a picture from seven-year-old Tommy Peterson or a headdress or, or one of the many other things that Slaughter and Carnoodle have torn up. The shoe is on the other foot for the bad guys here, and here they come begging off and just whining and complaining to Bob Cottle over what Steamboat just uh, pulled off on both of them. Uh, an incredible job, I thought, from Slaughter and Youngblood there. And even though Roddy Piper will make fun of Slaughter later on uh, during the next match over the fact that he was getting all confused, I thought that really added to everything. And maybe that's where uh, Gerald Briscoe got the term Youngboat from. And it was a good promo there. You can hear and feel the frustration, the anger on the behalf of Slaughter feeling violated that somebody actually got into their dressing room. And, you know, he alluded to the fact that the jacket cost $300. You know, he mentioned that several occasions, but just somebody destroyed their property and Slaughter was pissed about it. And like you said, never mind the fact that he ruined the drawing of little Tommy Peterson and did all that. But when it got done to him, he was pissed and just a little more heat to the fire, a little more heat to the feud going on. Great job of storytelling by Slaughter. Great angle. This was done very good. We know where all this is going with those two guys. Even <laughs> Slaughter getting in the dig at Colonel. Why'd you tear up your own coat? Just to just pop for that. That was pretty funny. That was that was fantastic. And uh, after Slaughter and Carnoodle finally get themselves out of there, it is time for a, another one of the localized promos. And in lieu of promo this one by jerry briscoe and because i've cut so much other audio i'll go ahead and skip this he just basically talks about the situation taking place with sir oliver humperdinck and dick slater turning on briscoe and orton a little bit earlier on uh then we got what i can best be described i think as a filler match and and i mean that in, in with no disrespect to the participants uh, of Tommy Gilbert and, and Ben Alexander here, but this match went about six minutes. It featured Roddy Piper on commentary as he and Bob Cottle just basically uh, kind of put a bow on the day's proceedings, Roman, because there really wasn't anything uh, to really note about in this match other than the fact that Tommy Gilbert got the victory with a mule kick and then a a, a running knee lift, uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 style, the coup de grace to pick up the victory, but just a, I, I think I got the feeling that it was probably scheduled to happen and they probably had a little bit more time than I, than I think that they expected because it felt like a three minute match that kind of got pulled out to six. Yeah, it got stretched and they just used it, like you said, to kind of recap the things that happened in the episode. And there was one point on commentary where Piper even said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but something to the effect of like, well, who cares about this match? And the fact that he left the match 
halfway through and during commentary, Piper didn't even stay till the end of this match. So that shows how important this match was. And uh, yeah, it, it dragged on a little bit longer than it needed to. That's for sure. And it also, I guess, too, no matter how long the match was going to go, they had to figure out a way to get Roddy Piper out of there. So him just, I guess, insulting everybody and storming off, uh, in theory, was a way to do it. And actually, in execution, it was a way to do it, too, because to close the show, the Greg the Hammer Valentine, Sir Oliver Humperdinck came back out, and this time they were joined by Dirty Dick Slater. And then we get Sir Oliver Humperdinck talking about the move of 1983, the big hustle in 1983 that he's been able to pull off by bringing the unpredictable one into the fold. We get to hear from not only Slater, but Greg Valentine one more time as well. Roddy Piper, again, I proved you're nothing but a fool, Roddy Piper. You in Piper's Palace, I know who you got working for you. I know everybody that you can call. I know Abdullah's on your pay list, and I know Jimmy Valiant's on your pay list, and the Briscoes are working for you, and the list goes on and on and on. Well, let me tell you something. I pulled off the greatest maneuver of 1983, and let me show you the greatest maneuver of 1983 right here. Dickie Slater. Dick Slater. I don't know your name, and it doesn't matter. A lot of people around this area know who I am. But nobody knows what I'm here for. The man this money paid me doesn't mean anything to me whatsoever. Bob Orton Jr., the only reason you're standing around right now is because I let you stand around. Jerry Briscoe, you can run your mouth all you want to. Rodney Piper, you mean nothing to me either. I don't have to sit here and tell anybody why I'm here, when I am going, when I am coming back. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I am the greatest wrestler. I can do anything in the ring to anybody because I'm not going to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you one thing right now. I'm a probably, if not one of the most violent men you'll ever see get in that ring. And that's what makes me what I am. And you better remember that real, real quick and take a long look at what I am because what I am is violence. I see you. You're nodding in approval. Uh, and yes, one of the most dangerous saying. men in professional wrestling today, but let's not forget the jewel of my collection, Greg Valentine, who still owns the U.S. heavyweight title. Roddy Piper, you're a punk, and you'll never get it off the man. My New Year's resolution is to keep this title all the year of 1983. I want to say something about Dick Slater. The man's credentials are a mile long. I've been over in Japan with him. I know Dickie Slater, and I want to say one thing about Dick Slater. He's telling you the truth, brother. He's not worried about the money. He's also a violent, vicious wrestler like myself, and I'm just glad that he saw the light and came over to the house of Humperdinck. And Dickie Slater, I know he went back to the dressing room right now, but I want Slater to tag up with me, I want him to go out after Piper's Palace, Bob Orton Jr. They don't call Bob Orton Jr. Jr. no more. Well, he looked like a little baby out there when Slater dropped off of that big atomic knee across that pencil neck throat of yours. Bob Orton Jr., let me tell you something, Roddy Piper. Where are you? Why aren't you running out here jumping on me like you usually do? That's right. That's right, because we've got some new men in here. we got some heavy guns, and you just watch out, Piper, Piper's Palace. And there we hear from Greg Valentine, Dick Slater, and Sir Oliver Humperdinck. You don't know why Slater is there, but he's there, and he's probably going to cause a lot of havoc. And you heard from Valentine one more time, taking a shot at Roddy Piper, and 
I have a feeling that just because of the personalities that are involved here, Roman, that it's uh, going to be just about impossible to keep Roddy Piper and Dick Slater away from each other, even though they, they both seem to have things going on here with Greg Valentine. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. And it was kind of funny to hear Slater talk about the violent man that he is. And it just made me think, I'm sure if you were to ask Sting about the uh, temper of Mr. Unpredictable Dick Slater, I'm sure he would probably attest to that. Yeah, Bob Orton Jr. actually would as well, too. There, uh, in, in fact, there there's a lot of stories with Dick Slater uh, causing havoc and beating up uh, men inside of this profession who are very tough themselves, but... That's how the show closes there, as you heard the music as we go off the air, but we can't close out January 8th quite yet, and I know what you're saying. Well, yeah, Mike, you got to do the the worldwide wrestling results and the other results from around the area, and I'm going to get to those things, but while Roman is still here on the line, I want to take a look south to Florida, as Greg Valentine and Sir Oliver Humperdinck had talked about earlier on, and talk about Barry Windham, because on this week's edition of Championship Wrestling from Florida, Ric Flair was in studio, and he would be facing off against Barry Windham. A few weeks ago, as I mentioned, Barry Windham won the Southern Heavyweight Championship after winning a tournament final over Greg Valentine. What also had taken place a few weeks prior, while Ric Flair was in the area, was Barry Windham competing with Flair in an amateur wrestling rules match. Now, where did we see this? We saw it with Roddy Piper in Mid-Atlantic when Flair beat a couple of guys and then faced off against Piper, who pinned him. Well, that's the exact same scenario as what went down in Florida, except for the fact that no one was there to help Ric Flair jump on Barry Windham afterward and rub his face in the concrete as... Ric Flair and Greg Valentine did to Roddy Piper. Well, Ric Flair was ready to face off against Barry Windham, and we're going to hear his promo, and then after that, we're going to hear what happened during their match. Also on commentary with Gordon Soley, Angelo King Kong Mosca. Just remember I said that. Of course, we're all very, very excited about the fact that young Barry Windham uh, has made some tremendous... Let's stop for one second now. You mentioned Barry Windham, and that's why I'm here, Gordon. I don't mean to come world up champion, on your Rick program. Blair, let me, uh, I'm the introduce. world champion. A month or so ago, Barry Windham made a very feeble attempt to embarrass me and to embarrass the World Heavyweight Championship. Right here on television, I had already wrestled 10 or 12 men. He came in and tried to embarrass me by making sure the referee counted in a match that didn't even exist. Well, today I'm back. And I told Florida, I told the wrestling world, the controversy between Ric Flair and all his magnificence. And Barry Windham is going to come to an end right here on your program. Barry Windham, you and I are getting in the ring, brother. And I'm going to show you and the whole wrestling world why Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of all time. Watch this, Gordon. All right. Well, we're going to have it. And that should be something indeed, a match between... Barry Windham and the world heavyweight champion Ric Flair here on television. We were talking a moment ago about the global tag team champions, the new champions, the fabulous Kangaroos from Australia. And we're going to see that. Just for uh, clarity there, the the fabulous Kangaroos at that point were Don Kent and and Roy Heffernan. 
Roy Heffernan, Doug Heffernan. No, Doug Heffernan was was actually the the character Kevin James played on The King of Queens. So it was it was Roy Heffernan. And uh, I digress. We'll get back to what matters here, and that's Ric Flair facing off against Barry Windham with Gordon Soley and Soli- Sir Sir Angelo Mosca, King Kong Angelo Mosca on commentary. Talk about intensity. We've got it here. These two men are oblivious of everything. Ooh, Barry Windham hurtled from the ring. That's what happens when the bell rings and you don't heed the warning. And Rick it is Warrior, Rick Flair. The man that I know that can handle himself. Barry Windham off the top rope. He's going. He's got him down for a... He's got the man. He did it again. The bell is rung. He did it again. The bell is rung. That match was over two minutes ago. Bell or not, Barry Windham just been the world heavyweight champion, Rick Ooh. Flair catching him from behind. Barry Windham battling back, and they're outside the ring, and Windham, ooh, Moscow. Moscow taking advantage of the situation here. Two of them grinding his face in the concrete. The two of them just grinding his face into the concrete. And oh, Barry's Barry's face is just his face becoming a mess as they Angelo Mosca and Ric Flair double teaming on this man. I haven't even done it yet. I haven't even. We'll be back. We'll be back. Well, Roman, he hadn't even started yet. Ricky Steamboat, Roddy Piper just a few weeks earlier, Ricky Morton a couple years later. This one kind of gets forgotten about because it took place in Florida and the other ones had gotten so much attention over the years, but another case, almost to a T, of what took place with Roddy Piper instead of Greg Valentine. It was was, uh, Angelo Mosca holding up the legs of Barry Windham as Ric Flair ground his face into the concrete to the horror shrieks of the fans and to the disappointment of the Dean of Wrestling, Gordon Soley. And that was the beauty back then in that there was no internet. You could do an angle, I mean, basically on top of each other. They did it in the Mid-Atlantic area. A few weeks later, they do it in Florida. I mean, they could have went to world class and did it three weeks after that. Nobody would have known about it probably. So. It was just, if it works in one area, there's a good chance it'll work in another area. And it was done well. And, you know, Wyndham and Flair are great on their own. And then you add in the heat of of, uh, Wyndham getting his face grinded in and, you know, beat up. It just adds a little bit more to it. And, yeah, just great stuff. And before we get away from Florida, I mentioned at the top of the show that Mike Rotundo had won the Mid-Atlantic Television Championship and basically chased bad Leroy Brown out of the area. Now. One of the last times we had seen Leroy Brown in the area, he was not only dealing with Mike Rotundo, he was dealing with Dusty Rhodes, somebody who he would probably be dealing again with very, very soon. Here's a little bit of Leroy Brown uh, destroying his competition, Wild Bill Snyder, in short order, 
as he has now joined J.J. Dillon's stable. We'll get the job done. It's very obvious. $10,000 will go. Leroy Brown. Baboo. That's a better elbow than the bar. So bad, bad Leroy Brown returns to Florida under the infamous uh, management of J.J. Dillon, and this could bode trouble for a lot of people. You know, Roman, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but you know how, no matter how diabolical Kevin Sullivan is, no matter how evil he is, no matter what he could do to Dusty Rhodes inside the ring, don't you ever say that there's an elbow that is more bionic than Dusty's. You hear the way he cut himself off real quick, hyping up Leroy Brown's elbow. He almost said it was better than bionic, but then he looked offset, and it was Eddie Graham giving him the throat slash there. Don't do that to the dream. There's only one dream, and there's only one bionic elbow. Yeah, Dusty, the the bionic elbow. But, you know, so, so much of that, when I think of the bionic elbow, I think of the wrestlers that fed it to him. You know, how many times the horseman would run into the elbow. And, you know, the elbow's only as good as the opponents make it look. And he had a lot of opponents that helped get over the bionic elbow. As the legendary line went, just run into my elbow, kid. It's bionic. And that's how that works. We're still a few years away from Dusty as Dory Funk Jr. is still here and things are still looking good in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And as we come to a close of this show, before I get into the results from Worldwide Wrestling Roman, any uh, last thoughts here on this episode from January 8th, 1983? Uh, Just the Steamboat Canoodle was a memorable angle, you know, with the jacket getting shredded and... uh... My gosh, it seems like every week they just, you know, how can we top this? How can we top this? They just keep it going and keep it going. And it's no wonder the road to Greensboro was such a phenomenal event. Absolutely. And it's going to get a lot hotter here in the next two months leading into this thing is we've really got some drama here now. What the Steamboat and Youngblood, what do they have over Sergeant Slaughter? How did they get that coat? Can Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cranoodle get back on the the right path here. They've been brawling with Steamboat and Youngblood all over the area. Uh, you can hear it from the results that I give out. They've talked about having no competition, but when they get to these arena shows, they've had to deal with Steamboat and Youngblood every time out, and things are getting more and more tense as we go along. But it is time for the results from Worldwide Wrestling. Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Ricky Harris and Masafuchi. Also on the show, Roddy Piper defeated Ken Timms. Dick Slater teamed up with Greg Valentine to defeat Tommy Gilbert and Mark Fleming, the young buck trainee of Luthez who just got his career going. Bob Orton Jr. defeated the veteran Frank Monty. And the Mid-Atlantic television champion Mike Rotundo knocked off Larry Red Dog Lane. Let's take time for this commercial message about the Mid-Atlantic wrestling events coming up in your area. We begin our tour around the area where Crockett toured around the area. And that actually was the same night as the TV tapings. Sumter, South Carolina, the Exhibition Center, saw Abdul the Butcher, Jimmy Valiant, and Sweet Brown Sugar defeat Paul Jones, the one-man gang, and making his final appearance in Mid-Atlantic, Bruiser Brody. Also on the show, Jack Briscoe knocked off Private Nelson. On Thursday, January 6th, Selby at the Recreation Center, Jack Briscoe defeated Dizzy Hogan. And Abdul the Butcher and Bob Orton defeated Paul Jones in the one-man gang. Also on Thursday in Norfolk at the Scope, 
Abdul the Butcher, Sweet Brown Sugar, and Jimmy Valiant once again teamed up, this time defeating Greg the Hammer Valentine, Dory Funk Jr., and Gene Anderson. Also on that show, Mike Rotundo defeated Leroy Brown, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood battled to a double countout with Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. The next night in Richmond at the Coliseum, January 7th, Abdul the Butcher and Bob Orton Jr. defeated Joe LaDuke and the One Man Gang, the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant defeated Greg Valentine, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood once again battled to a double countout against Don Cronoodle and Sergeant Slaughter. Also on Friday, Charleston, County Hall, Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Paul Jones, and Dory Funk Jr. defeated Mike Rotundo. On Saturday, January 8th, Conway, South Carolina, Private Nelson defeated Abe Jacobs, while Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. No finish was listed, but later on you'll hear they won by countout, and considering the two teams had been battling the double countouts in other matches, it only makes sense. On Sunday, part of the crew went to Toronto, Maple Leaf Gardens, January 9th. King Parsons defeated Jerry Bryant. Private Nelson defeated Nick DiCarlo. The K brothers, Rudy and Terry, defeated Ken Timms and Frank Monty. Coming in from the WWF, Salvatore Belomo defeated Buddy Rose by disqualification. Ray Stevens defeated Superfly Schnooka. Leo Burke defeated Johnny Weaver in a cage match. And Angelo Mosca dusted off Leroy Brown in a cage match, ending their feud. Back in the traditional part of the territory on Sunday, Hampton, Virginia, the Coliseum, the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant defeated the One Man Gang, Bob Orton Jr. defeated Greg Valentine by disqualification, and Jack Briscoe battled Dory Funk Jr. to a draw. Also on Sunday in Savannah, Georgia at the Civic Center, Jack Briscoe, Mike Rotundo, and Abdul the Butcher defeated Red Dog Lane, Gene Anderson, and Paul Jones, while Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood once again defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. On Monday in Greenville, South Carolina at Memorial Auditorium, Mike Rotundo defeated Paul Jones, Jack Briscoe defeated Dory Funk Jr., Jerry Briscoe defeated Greg Valentine, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. On Monday, January 10th, the crew that went up to Toronto had their television tapings in Brantford, Ontario. The workhorses of the night were Leo Burke and Ken Timms working four times, King Parsons worked three times, as did Rudy and Terry Kay and Jerry Bryant, Frank Monty worked twice, as did Bobby Bass, Private Nelson, Johnny Weaver, and Angelo Mosca, and Leroy Brown and Nick DiCarlo got the nights off. They only worked once. On Tuesday, January 11th, Columbia, South Carolina Township Auditorium, Bob Orton Jr. and the Briscoe Brothers defeated Gene Anderson, Private Nelson, and Red Dog Lane. Also on the show, Greg the Hammer Valentine defeated Roddy Piper, and the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant defeated the One Man Gang by disqualification. Also that night in Raleigh at the Civic Center, Mike Rotundo defeated Paul Jones, Abdul the Butcher defeated Dory Funk Jr. by disqualification, and once again Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle by countout. That would be the last show held in Raleigh until February 1st. And all that takes us back around to Wednesday, January 12, 1983 at the WPCQ Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina. And here's the WWE Network preview for next week. January 15, 1983, Dick Slater partners with Dory Funk Jr. in the main event against Gerald Briscoe and Sweet Brown Sugar. For Roman Gomez, I'm Mike Sempervivi. Take us home, Bob DeBartleben and Uncle Bob Cottle. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by Jim Crockett Promotions in exchange for commercial consideration. 
as these two go at it, Canodal and Steamboat. As they continue to fight now, as we go off of the air, Canodal and Steamboat slugging it out right here at our desk at ringside. Canodal has got that shirt. He has ripped it to shreds, and they continue to chop and slug away at each other. Canodal now wrapped in the shirt. Uh, here we go to the desk. As Canodal is on the floor, fans, we'll see you next week.